Hanover Research is proud to share with you the Grant Rants NIH series, an eight-part dive into the National Institutes of Health. Every other week, we will examine a different aspect of the NIH for grant seekers, including an overview of institutes and centers, the R series, fellowships and training grants, resubmissions, and more. Check out the Grant Rants podcast page for information on upcoming sessions and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Have a question or topic? Email us directly at podcast at HanoverResearch.com. Welcome back to the Grant Rant. We are um, in the second to last episode of our NIH series where we talk with uh, Senior Grants Consultant Tom Kuhn about all sorts of things pertaining to the NIH. Specifically, uh, we've covered kind of an overview of the NIH. We covered uh, the R series. We covered um, the report tool and all sorts of things. So if you haven't listened to those yet, go back and check those out. They're definitely worth a listen. Um, But we are back with Tom. Hello, Tom. Welcome back. Hi, Mallory. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back and uh, chatting more about NIH. I feel like we're kind of running running out the runway here on all the things that we could cover with NIH. <laughs> yeah, we're certainly going full breath, uh, but we're keeping it fun and insightful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, today we're going to talk a little bit about early career. Um, so being early career uh, status, which is basically... Um, and I know, Tom, that you'll cover this a little bit more, but it's basically being within 10 years of your terminal degree. There are benefits uh, when it comes to grant seeking, not only at the NIH, but with other agencies as well. Um, so a lot of those different federal agencies have programs that are specifically designed for and designated for PIs who are in this early stage space of their career. Um, so it makes things um, a little bit more available to them. Uh, there's other things that are available to them through programs and trainings and um, different things like that that can really kind of give them a leg up um, when it comes to entering the space, the NIH space for the first time. Um, so they have, um, you know, a lot of tools, a lot of things that are available to them. Um, so to kind of kick us off, Tom, like, let's just back up to the very beginning and tell me what is the early stage investigator designation um, and how does NIH specifically define it? Yeah, you're, you were right on the mark with what you said. An, any, an early stage investigator is really a PD or a PI, right? A program director, not just research, but or a principal investigator who's completed their terminal degree um, within 10 years or in the case of providers, right? The postgrad clinical training. So whichever's later and you have to have done that within the last 10 years. Uh, but the real dis- uh, distinguishing is that you haven't previously competed for or won any substantial independent research awards. That's uh, a big, big differentiator. So some of the people out of the gate that may grab uh, a significant project may not be eligible. Um, no- notably, the, the ESI applications with the score falling in the funding range are really prioritized in a different way by the center. They oftentimes look more at the potential than achievement. They understand the limitations of opportunities of time uh, for preliminary data and the kinds of work that may have been achieved early in your career or perhaps even at an institution that's more heavily favored on teaching. And so they bring them in uh, in comparison with the same mechanisms. Uh, they're reviewed on the same timelines and, and same panels, but they're really uh, an opportunity for the agency to tell the reviewers that there is a different way of looking at these. Like we talked earlier, this is not 
comparing apples and oranges and looking for everyone to be in the same basket. This is really looking at the potential that early stage investigators bring in, despite their uh, the number of publications, let's say, and and their uh, and their previous experience with running grants. So it's a real opportunity for early stage investigators uh, to leverage this this additional perspective, this this priority preference that the program officers and the agencies will give to really position yourselves for your career goals. Okay, that's helpful. And I want to back up to something that you said, because um, I think it's a helpful distinguisher and thing to know, especially when it comes to NIH. So you said that it's, you know, specifically, you know, ESI can be considered about, or it can be considered in the lens of somebody who is within the past 10 years completing their uh, terminal degree, but also somebody who has not previously competed successfully for an NIH independent uh, R series. Um, that's right. So, so if I'm, let's just give a, for, like a, example here. So if I am a ESI investigator and I'm three years out from my terminal degree and I secure um, one of the, maybe like an R21, after that time, I'm no longer granted the benefit of that ESI designation, correct? Yeah, the R21 is a little grayer line because sometimes early stage investigators are looking for a collaborative or a fast pace to preliminaries. But yes, otherwise you're right. If you're successful and in, in getting towards your independence, you know, our NIH looks at these as really investigator-driven. So once mm -hmm. you're funded as an investigator driving research, then you're not really going to get that ESI designation or benefits. Okay. And I think that kind of takes me to, you know, another question when we're talking about, um, you know, the designation and that kind of 10-year span. Um, you know, a lot of folks, they have things that kind of come up in the time of that 10 years. So we've heard of folks who, you know, uh, will go out on uh, parental leave. Uh, they've had some sort of life event that has kind of disrupted their ability to, you know, maintain a pace with, you know, research. So what happens for those kind of investigators? Does NIH just say, sorry, you're out of luck? Um, you're within 10 years of your terminal degree? Um, how do they approach that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, the great answer is that NIH, the big multi-billion dollar health funder, actually understands that people have health issues, good and bad, that interrupt their livelihoods, their productivity, and they're not going to count that against you in short. There are, you know, all the, all the myriad layers of uh, things you have to go through, but you can request to have that eligibility window extended. Okay. And how would they do that? Is there a, a, a specific way that they could do that? Do they have yeah, to reach you know, out to their program officer? Or? No, there's actually, a, that's a good question. Sorry, there's a, uh, an ESI extension committee that looks at these. Um, and the extensions are granted through the area commons like submissions. I don't know the process personally. I've never gone through it actually. Um, but I know there, if you Google ESI extension or look on the NIH website, there is actually this committee and a formal process for that. Okay. Yeah. So definitely check that out. Um, especially, you know, I've heard from multiple, uh, women investigators who have had children and took leave and, you know, things like that, uh, that can really impact their ability to be, you know, submitting tons of research grants. I mean, I, I know I wouldn't want to submit any kind of right. research grants while I'm, <laughs> while I'm on leave. Um, so yeah, so definitely check that out if your situation falls into that kind of, uh, space. Um, absolutely. But aside from that, when we're talking about uh, NIH and kind of early career uh, kind of focused uh, grants, there is the ESI designation, but there's also a series um, outside of the R series, and it's the K series, which is largely considered to be NIH's early career program. 
And these grants are all kind of early career development opportunities. Um, so Tom, can you walk us through some of the K-Series programs um, and kind of talk through, as you're mentioning and kind of going over these different programs, how faculty can decide which is best for them? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. NIH does have a very long track record and a, and a, and a broad view of mentoring people through the biomedical workforce. We're seeing more and more, even like NSF, going further and further into the early stages of people's career and tracking them all the way through. Uh, and once you are, you know, are, are researching and you are eligible for these career development awards, these CDAs or these K awards, um, the opportunity really is for NIH is looking not only to increase the capabilities of the workforce, but also the diversity. So that's very reflective of, you know, who we are as a nation, where we come from, plus all the multiplicity of, of perspective and the diversity of experiences that we bring in uh, to the research and to the caregiving, uh, even as patients ourselves. So there are, a, a, there's a variety of programs available really for, um, this is focused really on additional mentored or independent experience in a productive scientific environment that helps you really develop your careers um, as independent biomedical, bi behavioral, and, and, and clinical researchers. So uh, there's too many to talk about, but there's, they're scaffolded. They're sequenced in a way that brings you through the mentor to the independent levels, working with senior uh, research and academic career development tracks, um, mentored clinical science research programs. There are a number of them that span the like the R01, the R, you know, the have the, the KO1, 02, 05, 07. So there are so many. There are also importantly uh, recognitions that uh, there's various pathways to developing your career. So there are even fundings for career transitions, um, and also uh, its sister program, the Pathway to Independence. So there's a lot of. Uh, uh, how do you say, supportive mechanisms, supportive methodologies at NIH really to help uh, you mentor through these career development awards. No, that's really helpful. And I won't make you go through all of them, I promise. Um, yeah, we would bore our listeners. <laughs> Can you do a limerick involving all of them? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not chat TV. Chat T-O-M. I'm just regular T-O-M. <laughs> chat chat T-O-M. I, li yeah. I, I like that. Uh, the yeah. ones that I see the most, though, are the K-01, which is the Mentored Research Scientist Career Development Award. Um, the K-08, which is the Mentored Clinical Scientist Research Career Development Award. And the K-23, which is the Mentored Patient-Oriented Research Career. So they're all mentored, the ones that are the most con uh, uh, common. So those are going to have um, a strong mentor kind of component into it. Um, but there's also all these other ones, too. They have ones that are in there for independent research scientists. They have ones in there for career transitions. So if you're going for from... Um, you know, a mentored phase into an independent phase. They have that. They also have the K99 and the R00, which is the pathway to independence. So this is really meant to kind of launch you from the K series into uh, the R00. Do they call it double zero, Tom, or is it R00? It sounds very James Bond. Um, All right. It sounds way cooler the way that I'm yeah, saying it. But. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> Correct answer. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a, a little bit about that program uh, specifically because uh, it is, as we've established, the coolest one. <laughs> you know, it really is. I, I, you know, the coolest one, the, the what do you call uh, the capstone program. This is where NS, NIH is really understanding in all of these across this array of programs from early stage into the Ks, as you described, the mentored, the pathways to independence. This is where they're really taking care of the cohort of the, the highest performers, right? Those of you that are really making a difference in your field, translating that difference into, into practice so that it has health impacts 
and, and advancing the field and having the, and solving big social problems. So this program is really the capstone for NIH in these investments in maturing and, and ensuring timely transition of really the outstanding stellar postdoctoral researchers or the cl clinician scientists um, from these mentored into independent and into tenure track positions because that's ultimately like publications are for dissemination of data. The gold standard of tenure is the mark of full achievement in, in the pathway of biomedical uh, 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 careers. So these, uh, they're really critically important to move towards them, much like independent researchers move towards the R1. A lot of the mentored and emerging early stage faculty are moving towards the K99 or the K00. Okay, thanks. Uh, I think you meant uh, the R00. Oh, R00, R yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the James K's. Bond, the James Bond of the NIH grants. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, so you mentioned, and I know that I've mentioned a couple times, mentorship, um, because especially with an early career, it's such a huge thing. It's it's very important, um, you know, early career faculty, whether you're in the first one or two years where everything is kind of chaos and insane, or whether you're a little bit further along within that early career uh, trajectory where it's a little bit more stable. Having a strong mentor um, is so, so important to setting you up for long-term career success. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the key factors that go into selecting a mentor? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this gets much broader than NIH, but we'll bring it back to NIH. But in general, these are the people that you look up to. These are the people that you want to work with that that challenge you and guide you and make you think outside of your box, help you keep the rigor and reproducibility in your design as you get excited, you know, that you have to go back to the lab and do the work. But these are also people that help you in that broader context really flourish uh, for the reasons you went into the career and the reasons that you're trying to, tactical reasons you're trying to uh, achieve as you move through this. Um, and also bringing that sense of work and life balance, you know, to the extent that you're in the labs, where are you seeing and how are, is the work that you're doing contributing to the health and well-being of patients who are ultimately the original investors, right, through all these investments in your career, your education, postdoc, and, and, these, and these awards. So for NIH, really, when we talk about mentorship, uh, they really speak to the people that are in your fields that provide those, I don't want to say safe and nurturing DEI-only environments, but all of DEI, our inclusivity, our diversity of perspective, but our ability to work collaboratively, uh, to be interdisciplinary and even sometimes convergent, right? Bringing patient and provider perspectives in as researchers think about solving problems, who are the people in the field that are making the difference and how do their perspectives come in? So mentorship for NIH really involves a, a people ma making close associations in smaller levels within that broader context of pushing in the direction of it takes a village to solve huge social problems and it takes good parents and good friends and good teachers, right, to get you ready for those challenges. And that's really what NIH is talking about. And so more formally, you'll see people that are funded in your area, that are producing, uh, people that are working on projects where they need your expertise or vice versa, ways that you can collaborate to, to win awards, to produce the research you're after and to disseminate that broadly. Those are the kinds of people that NIH is looking to, to pull together and support through its initiatives. That's great. And it's also just, you know, you want to surround yourself by good people or, or with good people rather. Yeah. Uh, no, no matter, no matter what you're doing. So it's, it's just, you know, making sure that you're kind of, uh, finding the right mentor, um, that can help kind of guide you. That is a positive and a positive person in your life. Uh, I'll just kind of leave it at that. I've heard some horror stories and I'm sure you have too, Tom. 
Yeah, I mean, there are, but, you know, you persevere through those. That's why I think, you know, a mentor selection is so important and the criteria by which you work together and the ways in which you really flourish together. You know, you have to be hyper aware of that all the time, like any relationship kind of, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, how many AI yet? Uh, yet. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like we've kind of talked about, I mean, throughout the entire series. And even before that, we've talked extensively about how um, a lot of times, you know, collaboration is a marriage. Well, it's kind of the same way with <laughs> mentorship. You know, it's a partnership uh, that you're going to yeah. be in for a while. Um, and so make sure that you're choosing wisely so that you don't end up, you know, wanting to get divorced halfway through. Um, <laughs> uh, so, Besides choosing a good mentor um, and, you know, leaning into some of those K-series programs that deal with mentorship, uh, NIH also has uh, the Early Career Reviewer Program. Um, And, you know, we talk about serving as a reviewer as just something that's best practice to begin with. But can you talk about, you know, when you're early career, you're often very strapped for time. Uh, So you have, uh, you know, a lot of things going on. You're teaching. You're trying to get grant proposals out the door. You're participating in, in other professional development. You're meeting with your mentor who's, uh, you know, giving you all sorts of guidance and advice and kind of uh, putting you on the path for the rest of your career. So why would you want to prioritize participating in something like the Early Career Reviewer Program, which is just going to be another, um, you know, it's it's just asking for more of your time. Yeah, and it is it is some time, but you know I've been a reviewer for ten plus years, and it is one of the most uh, informative experiences in terms of the entire peer review process. It also really helps you to accelerate some of the rapport that you develop with your other colleagues and peers in the field that you may not see that often. You know, particularly as we go online and we're not in conferences as much, uh, but also with the program officers who can help or who are you know deciding the priorities and executing mechanisms and supervising review panels. But for a long time, these were, you know, kind of for people with a lot of experience making decisions. And it, there was evidence in the 78, certainly late 80s, that there, that there was a disparity between uh, how many R01s were given to a small number of PIs. And so they broke that up. And in part of doing that, NIH, NSF does this. They really recognize that part of early career mechanism uh, mentorship is giving people, uh, like we give students experiential learning opportunities, this is a great way to experience uh, the whole review process. Um, They really want to bring in people that have at least a year of experience, they're assistant professors, they've not really done, uh, they've not been in PI uh, positions on major research grants at least. And the opportunity, though, as you said, it takes some time, is really to connect in all of those ways and to review what other people are reading and writing, to develop your own critiques and to sit in the panels where the conversations go from the individual to the much broader conversations supervised by the research scientists in the room and the staff from NIH. And so you can see the transition between individual, uh, the way your readers of your grants are going to be looking at your grants uh, through through your own eyes. And that's an indispensable experience in in ways um, that you probably couldn't even get from some of the mock panel webinars they have. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think also, um, I'm, and I have to double check this. I don't, I don't know it off the top of my head, but for regular reviewers, so, uh, PIs who sit on, um, study sections, I know that they get special benefits too. Um, they get, you know, a brand new car. No, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> wrong show, wrong show. Oh, bummer. Um, remind me to tell you about, uh, I, I just went to Nordup, um, and at Nordup, there was, uh, somebody there who had a Plinko table set up and mm. I thought that was very, in- that was very interesting. Um, so aside from all of the other benefits that you get, uh, and I, yeah. again, I have to double check about whether or not you, uh, get it for the early career program. But when you serve on a study section, you get continuous submission privileges. Uh, so you get a little extra, uh, Va-va-voom. When it comes to kind of submitting, you get uh, a little extra time. You're not you're not held to those deadlines uh, in the same way as folks who do not serve on study sections. And you'll have to take a look uh, about what those guidelines look like. Uh, there is a website on NIH's uh, site that kind of covers uh, the continuous submission guidelines. Um, but that's another nice thing. So NIH recognizes that when you're serving as a reviewer and you're sitting on these panels and, and, you know, things like that, it's taking away from your own time to write your grants. And so to, Mm. uh, you know, to kind of, um, thank you for your time and your service, they're kind of giving you a little extra time. So that's, that's also nice. Yeah, that's a fair trade off. I should say too, that these are very competitive for this pro the demand for this program is really high. So you're only allowed to serve once. So choose well, um, because, yeah, you're going to get a little extra privilege on that program that you're applying to, plus a little, a stronger connection with, the scientific research officers and the whole process. And when you say you're only allowed to serve once, you mean for the early career reviewer For the program. E- for the ECR, yeah, the reviewer. Okay, okay. Yeah, just wanted to clarify that. Um, so what are some other things that early career PIs can do to kind of set themselves up for success? I know NIH hosts conferences. They should go to their own conference, like conferences within their specific field. So, um, you know, if your discipline has specific conferences, go to those two, network, do that kind of stuff. But what else... Uh, I mean, what else is important, Tom? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the ways when I think about it, that, that kind of question about importance to NIH is think about the way they score proposals, right? And looking at the overall impact and how that, they dissect that into significance, innovation, and, of course, the big, the big uh, gorilla in the room, the, the approach. Um, but to the extent that you're being productive and publishing, uh, where are opportunities for you to disseminate in ways that are uh, really effective, that are fun, that are interesting, that drive science, that engage students, and or all of those kinds of things? The more, the more that you're doing in that, uh, in that realm, which you're probably already good at, having gone through what it takes to be one of these researchers, uh, one of these pra- clinicians, st- statisticians, others that are in this field, um, make sure that you're uh, contributing to the field and taking that more out more broadly and connecting with program officers so that you can bring that and reflect that story of who you are and what you're trying to accomplish in your proposals. So in addition to all of these resources and things like that, NIH has a bunch of other stuff. So if you haven't listened to the episode, it was our last episode on NIH report, go on there, be familiar with that tool. It's so helpful. It's nice and visual. You can sort the data, you can export the data if you want to do a pivot table. Um, And, you know, check that out for sure. Um, But also, you know, there's other things that you can do, like reach out to other folks uh, that you know that you, you know, graduated (laughs) with, see where they're doing, check out their CV see what kind of things they've been they've been doing in addition to going to conferences reach out to your own internal office of sponsored projects or sponsored research whatever that looks like see what available resources that they have maybe they run early career workshops maybe they have a case series workshop maybe they have uh, proposals yeah. that others have you know submitted that they are now making available to you so that you can take a look at fully funded proposals you know see what's there um, get help with your bio sketch you know do all of those things reach out far and wide to get the help that you need um and then also, I would say, 
in addition to NIDDK, which actually I don't know if it's NIDDK, I think it's NIAID, their website has uh, examples of fully funded proposals, but you can mm-hmm. also go on another um, website. It's called O-Grants, uh, which is actually funded by NLMS. Um, and so you can go check that out and they have fully funded grants there too. But really just kind of, you know, keep in mind that some of them are not great. <laughs> so you want to make sure that you're kind of, you know, whatever you do is kind of adhering to the most recent uh, formatting guidelines and, you know, things like that. But it's also just good to get exposure to kind of what's been funded, what hasn't been funded so that you can get a sense of, you know, the NIH and kind of how they operate and w- things that might be important to them as they're evaluating your uh, proposal. Yeah, that's great advice. And you asked me earlier about what faculty could be doing early stage, especially there's that site ORCID, right? You can really leverage some of that to, uh, to help cross pollinate with potential collaborators and, and other publishers and, and find other different ways of collaborating with your peers. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if you're an early career, um, faculty member and uh, you have a Hanover partnership, reach out to your primary contact. We have a ton of resources for you. We've done a ton of uh, trainings on early career. Um, we also have something called the Grants Learning Center, uh, which has some modules in there specifically for for the NIHR series. It'll take you through uh, videos and kind of a step-by-step guide. Um, and so definitely check that out. Um, but other than that, Tom, anything else you want to talk about when it comes to being uh, a cool early career kid? Um, no, I mean, remember that the, these are competitive proposals and that iteration and sequencing are critical to your success, but we wish you the best and look forward to working with you. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so keep, uh, listening in for the final episode of this series. It's going to be the NIH future directions where we're going to be talking about what's next for NIH. And we'll talk a a little bit about things like ARPA-H. Um, if you have any questions about anything that we've covered today or in any of the previous uh, six episodes of this particular series, don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach out to me directly at podcast at HanoverResearch.com. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be starting our new series, um, and it's going to be taking a step back from the NIH and focusing more on um, critical components for uh, grants, grant writing success. Um, so listen in for the schedule for that. We're going to have that ready in the next couple of weeks. Um, but otherwise, uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers.